right, well, let's go ahead and start. Um, we are, well, I need my glasses is what I need. Um, as you heard, we're going to be studying hermeneutics. That's just a big word for Bible interpretation. And that's uh, going to go for the duration of the semester, uh, the rest of the year until uh, summer. And, um, and it's going to be team taught by the pastors. So uh, you can expect a diversity there. And that's what we're doing. Uh, any questions? If not, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for the being the family of God, one family. And we thank you for the reminder of that. We thank you, Lord, uh, even with a text as complex as we saw today, how important it is to learn how to read your Bible, to read it in a way that enables us to be faithful and, and effective in our use of it. And so, Father, we do pray you would, you would bless this course and help us, Lord, to... Um, to learn and to grow and, and to be edified as we grow to love your your word, as the psalmist says, and to appreciate it. And we pray that it will give us great confidence uh, that we can interpret it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to go ahead and just introduce it today. And, and to begin with, just sort of why a seminar on biblical interpretation? And, of course, uh, you're going to be, somebody's going to be a smart aleck or something and say, well, because uh, the purpose is to learn how to interpret the Bible. Right, we got that. <laughs> but, but what's going on in the context? Why would we make this such an emphasis uh, this year? And so that's what I mean by what's our purpose. And, um, and I want to start, and I'm going to be just taking every, I should mention, by the way, every handout that we're doing is online. Um, the course, you can go to our, our website, you know, CPC, go to court, uh, uh, current classes, and you'll see this class listed, and each week we'll be putting the outlines into the uh, thing. You can bring them, you can download them, you can look at them on your phone. Uh, I'm going to try to work this with this uh, system as well, but just so you know, they are available. Well, you know, have you ever noticed, um, and maybe you haven't, but just how many times... Christ, in his word, warns us about the last days, and especially what we should expect to happen in the last days, when we're living in the last days, obviously between Christ's first and second return. This is just a smithering. This is just a sample of the kinds of things that Christ, who is the word, by his scripture, uh, warns us about. Um, Christ warns against assuming the position of teacher without great caution. James 3.1. I'm going to let you read while I kind of go through it. Um, Christ tells us to watch carefully lest false teachers bring harm to the church. In other words, we should expect that there will be people who are church people, people who the church would listen to that will mislead us. And how would you know the difference? Christ commands that those who do teach false doctrine be removed from teaching. So, Think about the responsibility now of the church. You know, some of you I know know that that prior to being a teacher of any class in this in this church, you would have had to take a full theology, confessional theology course. This class is one of those classes, as well as our spiritual leadership training. And um, and some people said to me, "Well, I've never seen a church do that." Well, this this right here tells me that we have to do it. You know, that the that the shepherds of the flock are responsible to know the good from the bad teachers and have some program in place that would enable us to discern that and to protect you. Because many of us would be teachers with, with well intent 
and not be aware that perhaps we are misleading. And, and Christ takes this very seriously. I hope you're getting a sense of that. So um, so we need to be removed. Christ warns us that the last days we characterize not only by false teaching, but a natural affinity for it. Let me read that one. For time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. We'll, we'll talk some more about that. But the kind of subjectivization of Bible interpretation is one of our great contexts in post-enlightenment. A very individualistic, subjectivistic way of reading the Bible. Um, and it just fits right into what this passage is talking about. Where we want to be entertained. We don't have, a, we don't have patience for sound doctrine. Um, we want it quick, we want it sound bites, we want it, you know, very subjectivistic, an immediate gratifying kind of thing, and that's exactly what he's talking about. People who want to be itched. The outward felt needs driven interpretation of the Bible, not the inward unfelt needs of realities of our doctrine. So so that's a very serious warning that we, we should really think about. Uh oh, just lost my spot there for a minute. Um you know, again, First Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Christ warns us that many will want to be teachers who are not qualified. So this, this scares me because you can have a lot of zeal. You can have a lot of good intent. People who want to serve God. And he warns us there's going to be people like that who really have every good intention. Um, and yet there are going to be false teachers. Uh, Christ commands that teachers are to be measured by the standards of sound doctrine. That presumes you have a standard, which means you, you, you are interpreting the Scripture, and it assumes that you can interpret it, by the way. It assumes that Scripture can be inter- interpreted. But how would you do it? And that's probably what we're going to be talking about. Um, Christ intends for the ministry of teaching to be passed on through the succession of apostolic faith. Um, think about this passage, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, which tells you a lot about how our doctrine should be formed. But what you have heard from me through many witnesses and trust of faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. You know, what all this sort of speaks to, of course, is it's not enough to have zeal. It's not enough to be passionate, you know, which is sort of the buzzwords these days. It's not enough to really have a, 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 a big heart. And, um, you know, I, this is a quote that some of you know I've quoted before, but B.B. Warfield, who's a Princeton uh, professor at the, there at the seminary, says, A low view of the functions of the ministry will naturally carry with it a low conception of the training necessary. There's a high view of the functions of the ministry on evangelical lines, and evidently produces a high conception of the training which is needed to prepare men for the exercise of these high functions. For here we have, of course, an infinitely higher conception is merely an enthusiastic Christian eager to do work for Christ. We might might as well seek recruits for the ministry among the capable young fellows about town, zeal their highest spiritual attainment. And, I mean, think about this. This is really haunting. Because do we have a tolerance? Um, Do we as a church? It's hard. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, it would be so much easier to find Sunday school teachers if we were just to just kind of turn a deaf ear and not have a process and a program in place to where we can stand before Christ as a church and say we've done due diligence. You know, who should be leading small group Bible studies? Who should be leading our kids? I've said this many times, but um, I cannot, I could possibly count over the years now of ministry how many times someone's coming into my study 
for a pastoral consultation about some issue, it's pretty quickly discerned where the theological problem is. And I'll say, well, you know, and, and I'll say something to the effect of, you know, well, where did you learn that? Well, that, that's what we were taught in my small group in, in college, or that's what I learned in my Sunday school class. These are all well-intended people probably teaching these things. But they really have a detrimental effect. And um, it's interesting that the more Christendom you get into, ironically, my experience has been, the more of Christendom you're around, the more we take for granted that we know how to interpret the Bible, it seems. Um, we take it very, you know, one of the things that I've lamented over the years is when I get around the Christendom world, there's a casualness with, it, there's a casualness in using scripture. We talked about this in our 50-something. Um, there's a book that, that I recommended for them to read, and I won't mention it now on tape, but, um, and you know, it has a lot of really good stuff in it, you know, that's, that's focusing on parents of adult children and how that relationship needs to change and all that. And it, it's, some great, it's a good book. But as I was flipping through it and reading it, it was horrifying what's, what was being done with Scripture and the way Scripture was being utilized out of its context to say something. And see, that's ironic because, and that's why, but it's what you see in Christendom especially where we, we, we kind of adopt the, the notion that we have to have a Bible verse to hang everything we say, which you can appreciate where that comes from, can't you? I mean, there's a little bit of a, where's my authority for saying this? Well, okay, I want to hang it on a Bible verse. But then we're so casual because we've heard so many scriptures used for so many different purposes that I really think we have adopted evangelicals, I'm going to show you some proofs of that in a minute, that evangelical type people have adopted a kind of hermeneutic, a kind of Bible interpretation method and expectation that is no different than the liberalism that many evangelicals fought 50 years ago. And scholars are saying this everywhere. And I'll point some of that out to you in a minute. So that's the first point. Um, why, why this course? Well, quite frankly, uh, we're commanded to do this course. Uh, we're commanded to do that um, with respect to our teaching ministry. Uh, but also just because of the danger that lurks without helping you become. And, and my role here is, our role here is not simply to make you teachers, I want you to, we're hoping that perhaps the most important roles is to teach you how to listen and hear sermons and Bible studies and lessons. We're trying to teach you how to hear and to analyze what you're hearing. So that's, to me, if you don't have any ambition whatsoever of ever teaching anything, this course is just as much for you. Um, and so that's sort of the idea of it. So that's the first. Any, any thoughts or questions? Does this resonate? You getting these these warnings? Any thoughts, comments, commentary? Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, what's at stake here is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can he really say, thus saith the Lord? And we understand it. It really gets right to the core. You're right. Good point. Another reason, and I kind of alluded to it, but just to show you this, uh, the responsibility of every Christian to examine the teachings of our day in the light of Scripture. 
Um, would someone read this Acts passage? This is a wonderful um, passage that means everyone is responsible <laughs> for how they hear a sermon. And then I'm going to show you a confessional statement. But would someone read that? Please. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. They welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether Paul whether these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high I just love that, though. And they examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Were you, were you examining scripture this morning when this preacher stood up there and, and started talking to you? Were you doing that? A good sermon would, would force you to do it. And a good listener would force a good sermon tier, I don't know if that's a word, to do it. Because of a passage like this. Listen to the way our confession talks about this. Um, this is in larger catechism question 160. What is required of those who hear the word preached? Quote, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. That's your responsibility, whether you're going to ever be a teacher or not. It's your responsibility to find teachers that will, will accept the burden of helping you examine the scripture. And um, it's, a, it's for you to help, and I'm, I'm getting very straight here, because I could talk to the pastors, of course, or the teachers, and I will, but uh, for you, you can have a lot to do with whether or not that happens in your church. Do you tolerate a, a examination kind of a sermon? Will you tolerate that? Not only will you tolerate it, will you applaud it? I don't mean in a, you know, elevating the man stuff. I don't mean that. But is that something you can tolerate? <laughs> that you're willing to have someone open the scripture up. I'll never forget, I'm, uh, I had the privilege, it was a great privilege. Um, it, it, you had to go through auditions, the whole thing, to, to study under a guy named Peter Gomes at Harvard. He was the Harvard chaplain at the time, maybe you know that name. And, um, and there was, you know, he would, he would open it up to, to all the students and, and um, and I got into that class, and it was a great class. He really helped me a lot. He gave me the diamond method, et cetera. If I just stick to it, y'all would, I know you'd be pleased with what he was sharing. But there was one interesting thing that, that we talked about towards the end, and he gave me this book. At the very end of the course, we have a, a dinner at his house, and it's a very nice formal dinner, and there's only 12 of us in the class, and we're being served. And, but this dinner is in his study, and, he, and then at the end of the dinner, he literally walks around his study, and he chooses a book that's tailored for his for the student that's in that class it was just one of those beautiful wonderful events and uh but one of the books he gave me was on the spirit-filled preaching and um it was a good book i mean it was good for me to read it uh he's coming out of the you know the black tradition particularly and it was on black preaching and thought that would be a good book um but it was actually we had a conversation about you know and i remember there was just something that that he said that i had to say you know i don't know if i can buy that and the idea was, look, they don't, they don't care how you got it. Just tell them what to believe. Just tell them what to believe. And I remember when I heard that, it struck me. Again, I, love, I, I hate to even say that because he really was a very good professor and teacher. But when he said that, that's exactly what I think a lot of 
I mean, he was making the case that's what they want. That's what a parishioner wants. Just tell me what to believe. Get on with it. I can't do that based on this confession that we've, we've subscribed to. I can't do that. I would be violating my confession of faith um, just to say, here's what you need to believe. Now, I know if I'm sitting out there, I know if I'm you, I'm going, just tell me what to believe, man. I trust you. Yeah, get on with it. Take 15, 20 minutes off this sermon. You can do it just like that. You could. You could do it just like that, at least. Um, and, you know, ain't going to do it. <laughs> just can't do it. Now, I could probably get the sermons a little tired. <laughs> I'm not going to hide behind the confession of faith. <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's it, you know, when you love the word, you just can't stop it. So. <laughs> Zeal's my greatest ass now. Um, so, yeah. Uh, given that, would we be touching on the choice and use of commentaries? Um, later, later on, we, we will, yeah. Okay. Uh, not today. Uh, no, we got hope. So that's the second reason, you know, because you, you need to be good listeners. Third reason is, uh, you know, a love for God's word and the salvation. Now, you know, uh, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Uh, on and on it goes. Why is it this? There it is. Um, oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation of day all along. In other words, it really comes down to, but I want you to see how it, it goes through this whole thing. You can read it, how it makes us wiser than the aged. Think about that. You know, being old doesn't necessarily make you wise. Let's just say it right out. You know, it's true. Being old gives you great potential to be wise. <laughs> um, it, and, and better potential than if you're young. There's no doubt about it. You learn lessons and you, you acquire a lot of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, young folks should listen to old folks more or less. But, but um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a done deal. You can also be calcified in your, in your wrong thoughts and your wrong ideologies and uh, the law is the only thing that transcends people, everything. But here's where I wanted to go especially. You know, uh, maybe a little commentary on our sermon today, but by soul languages for your salvation, I hope in your word. Now, see, we understand that the word of God, the law, it does save. Right? He kind of got it there insofar as it's fulfilled in Christ. Don't forget that the word, as we're going to see, the whole purpose of Scripture is every ounce of the Bible Every single jot and tittle of the Bible is ultimately about salvation and a salvation that is ultimately accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that? Um, you know, we know it, of course, uh, in terms of, of the methodology of Christ himself when he, on the Emmaus Road, remember that? And uh, he revealed, he, he did, went through the law and the prophets and revealed himself to those uh, travelers. The whole of Scripture we should love the word because it is salvific. It is salvific. It saves you. Now, do you believe that? Or, is, or, is, or do we have this idea that the word, you know, that's just the, that's sort of the stodgy or the didactic stuff. It teaches you. But, but no, it's a salvific thing. There's a power in the word. Um, it really is a, a, a sword, you know, that doesn't come back lame, if you will. We should love the word. And, um, and, and you could see how, um, how dangerous this would be. So it's really about Christ is my point. Um, how it is for the love of Christ, we should be good interpreters of Scripture because we are studying Jesus Christ ultimately in every passage of Scripture. It's going to get us there somewhere, somehow, 
in its context. And you can see the danger. I mean, for instance, one of the things that's kind of crept up on us as of late is these study Bibles. Now, study Bibles are good and they can be horrible, you know. Uh, it all depends on the lens that's being used in that, that study Bible. One of the big trends has been to find these sort of niche niche Bibles, you know, the, the pink one for the g- girls and the blue one for the boys, you know, the college-bound one, the youth-bound one, and all of a sudden you have all these Bibles that have been written with a what? With an agenda. Dangerous. You know, now, granted, we, we, we give our children a reform study Bible when they graduate from high school. Um, and, and, yeah, I guess from a purist would say that even that might be dangerous. But what that is is basically a commentary from a source that we affirm. And so we, we, we do it because of the source, the commentators are, re- are reading it from a context that we believe is confessionally sound because they're reading it with the church. We're going to talk about how important that is. So we do that. So it's not that we're opposed to all study Bibles, but just think about how dangerous that can be if what you're trying to do, if you're, if you're trying to sell this thing, you're on the committee that's doing this, and you're trying to sell it to high school kids, what are you going to be tempted to do? You're going to start taking scripture and make, you're wanting so desperately for the Bible to be relevant, to be practical. And that's, that's reversing, as you'll see, the order of interpretation. You don't start with what you want from the Bible. You start with what the Bible says, and then you apply it to where it would, by good and necessary inference, be applicable. And it's a very dangerous thing. But So I, I'm nervous about that a little bit. Why is it important to read the Bible as a single story? We kind of got to that. That's something we're going to learn how to do. Why do we read the Bible as a single story? Yes? It's kind of an obvious answer. Because it is. Who's the author? How many authors? One and many. We're going to have to talk about that. One and many. But ultimately, we believe there's one author. That is huge because that is, that is, that is an idea that, believe it or not, is, is not in vogue in, in, in most theological contexts. You know, this idea that, that, that there's one author. That there's a biblical theology singular. Uh, and so we're, we've got a lot of temptations in front of us. So just a summary, all scripture ultimately wants to point us to Christ. We've talked about that. We see it in the strategy of Paul. We see it in Peter. We see it in the New Testament. We see it by Jesus himself. We see it in the book of Revelations. It's all getting us to Christ. So within that context, I want us, and I did it pretty quickly, we're going to just point out a few things, but I want us to go back to this passage in 2 Timothy 3, and, and let's go ahead and read it again, if you would. Someone read that out loud for us, please. So there you have a very powerful statement on the one hand of the crisis, and you see a lot of subjectivism in this, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. Now, if those are the, the times that we live in, and I think that's 
almost irrefutable, <laughs> then what, would, what effect would that have on your interpreting Scripture? Help me out here. If, if this is true, which we believe it is, talk to me a little bit about what we would expect how, if, if these sorts of values, these sorts of, of uh, you know, perspectives, how would they shape us? Okay, good. Good. So we bring a, a, an agenda that's related to one of these things. Okay, what else? Could be anything. Think about it. What what would you expect to see? Would we be attracted? Uh, what would be? What kind of teaching would we would we be attracted to? Wouldn't it be teaching that fits into these categories? Yeah, messages that feed these themes. You know, what's the what's what's the passage that's going to help me be successful? And by successful, I mean make more money, live live a wealthy lifestyle, or whatever it is. I've had people tell me that. Say, you know, I wish you'd help me how to be successful in my business. And I, and they really meant by that, not how to be a good witness in Christianity in my business or something, but literally, aren't there Bible principles that make you successful? Now, there are, probably. <laughs> but mm, we're getting dangerous here. Or And you can see some of the other things. Teaching that makes me love myself, even if it's not the kind of teaching that should make me love myself or something like that. All this. Was that something? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so let me just try to play this out a little bit. So here's some popular trends, right? Um, James Hunter is a sociologist, and he says it this way. In different terms, there's a shift from a concern with what the Bible says to what God is telling me. Now, you think that's an innocent shift, probably. That's a very significantly dangerous shift. We call it, you know, neo-orthodoxy, for one, or the new hermeneutic. But the coming generation is less demanding in its expectations of the Bible. Beyond this, however, there is a marked tendency towards hermeneutic subjectivism or the neo-orthodox impulse, and we'll talk about that. But notice how it all begins. If we're living and swimming in a kind of Americana social context— well, what would individualism sound like in Bible interpretation? Well, you know, it's all a matter of one's own personal interpretation or private interpretation. Now, how many, how many people have heard that? It's all a matter of your own private interpretation. Now, what happens in our lives that reinforces that? Can you think of what's happened? What, where, where does this kind of, what reinforces this idea? Well, how many times have you heard a sermon on a passage and they got the same thing from it. You see, when you've heard sermons on the same passages or teaching on the same passages, but with very different things being, being um, uh, you know, concluded by it, you're suddenly beginning to, to believe that, you know what, it really just comes down to one's own personal private interpretation. And what, what just happened in that little, that little moment? We lost the objectivity of God's speaking to us. There's no objectivity more. It's all become subjectivized. It's all a matter of a person's own private interpretation. Um, this is a uh, a quote. Um, you know, we really start to see this in the revival period in America, 
where the individual became the arbiter of what the Bible did and did not say. In other words, what's truth? Well, out of this comes if it's popular. Well, just think about that for a minute. What is truth? Well, it's what's popular. And, of course, compare that. Uh, we, you know, I am delayed. You may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. What does that say? I don't know of a passage of Scripture that calls an individual the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So we're reading the Bible individually. I heard a professor once say, um, you know, we, we, we really do applaud and we're grateful that, to God that we have. You have to push that little thing in the back there, George. No, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's broken, basically. Um, was the Gutenberg and the printing press, how successful was that if measured against the standard of orthodoxy? You know, we all love having our, our personal Bibles, and I do, and we should all be encouraged by that. We should all read it. That's no problem here. God, I just need to put that out. But, but what's happened through modernity is this private reading of Scripture, a reading of Scripture that's detached from the church reading Scripture together, something that was not heard of, was impossible to do until around the 16th, 17th century. Think about that. For 1,700 years... No one had a personal Bible. Were they better off or worse off for it? Probably you're going to say both and, if you're honest. You know, um, it's true that we want to hold the church accountable, you know, and so there's a balance of power a little bit there with everyone being able to look at the words and read them and not just take, you know. But the point being is it's, it's something just to think about. It's kind of, it kind of shocks you for me to say that, doesn't it? That there's, there's a both and going on here. Um, populism. The common sense of the majority is right. In America, Nathan Hatch is writing about the Democrat, democratization of American Christianity. It's a book he wrote. This is an essay he wrote before that. In America, the per principle mediator of God's voice has not been state, church, council, confession, ethnic group, university, college, or seminary. It has been quite simply the people. The impulse to rework Christianity into forms that were unmistakably popular and democratic in at least three ways. It was audience-centered, intellectually open to all, and organizationally pluralistic and innovative. That's, that's, just, that's amazing if you stop to think about what's happening here. Individualism is, is, is makes, moves us into more of a subjective reading of the Bible. Populism now has shaped the what we can even learn. It's the media that shapes the message. Because if it's going to be popular, it's got to be mass-oriented. And if it's going to be mass-oriented, you've got these three characteristics that Hatch is talking about. And are those characteristics that's going to uh, benefit an accurate reading of the Bible? I think pretty obviously no. And so, uh, but how does that compare to Scripture? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. I mean, it's an amazing observation how skeptical, maybe even cynical, Christ was regarding the crowds. But clearly, I don't hear Christ teaching, if you preach the truth, the crowds will tell you. 
that it'll be true because everyone finds it truthful. No. You see, just the opposite. From the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, theology's always been a remnant. Orthodoxy's been a remnant trend in the Bible. We're not everyone popularly. I mean, think of Noah and all the people around him, right? I mean, you could just go one story after a story after a story after a story. It's probably the worst way humanly possible to discern orthodoxy and by in terms of because it's popular. And yet our whole market, and it is a market, it's a very lucrative market, whether it's publishing markets, whether it's video, there's a huge market out there pushing pastors and teachers to make it populous. And one of the greatest reasons for that is that pastors and teachers, without thinking about it, and the people, we're all guilty here, have concluded that if it's if God is in it, it's going to be a mass event. If God is in it, it's going to be popular. It's just crazy how counterintuitive that would be if all you were doing is reading the Bible. Now, I'm not against growth. I'm not against crowds. We see it in Acts 2, right? I, that's not the point. It's just, let's just at the very least neutralize it. That's not the method. That's not what it should be in terms of how we do it. Anti-intellectualism, again, following these three things that Natch, Hatch talked about. All I need is my Bible. Um, again, this sovereign audience idea. Uh, Nathan Hatch was quoting to Tocqueville, and he says, Expecting that great freedom of thought would generate great ideas, he found instead that Americans easily became slaves of slogans. I mean, this was 19th century, guys. Oh, my gosh. Expecting to find priests, he found politicians. And what he means is pulpits. Um, but we're told to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that you may discern what the will of God is, good and acceptable and perfect. So there's some real deep underlying roots to this. I'm not going to take the time right now to do it. It's in here. Um, you can read about it. Um, you know, at the very heart and soul of these two historical movements, what we call historical criticism and the new hermeneutic, um, is, is the, what's called the correlation, um, principle. And what that means is that we form from our own experience a criteria as to what and how we can, what we can believe in the Bible is, is truth versus myth. That's the historical criticism. So that agenda says, to make it really simple, have you seen a resurrection recently? Nah, I haven't seen the resurrection. So we all know, therefore, because I haven't experienced it, and none of my people have experienced it, that therefore that's myth language in the Bible of the first century. You see what I just did? I made a correlation between my experience and what I'm reading in the Bible, and that became a basis for discerning what was truth and fact versus myth and false. No, that's the historical criticism. We don't do a lot of, that's probably not a group like this is temptation. I suspect you're not part of the Jesus project and you're not going to go back and find the real Jesus by the demythalization sort of techniques. I don't think any of you are doing that. But notice this next one. This is another heresy. What we do now is we interpret, it's the opposite direction. It's we, we form a corollary with the scripture as to what it means to me. So let's have a Bible study, a small group Bible study. There's a good table. Y'all ready to have a Bible study? Everyone turn to the passage X. Have you turned to it? Yep. Just Let's read it. We read it around the room. All right. What does that mean to you? 
Man, it's called serendipity. You see, and we're and what's going to happen is what does that mean to you? Well, it means you know I can't just wow that was creative. That's man, you're filled with the spirit. What does it mean to you? Oh man, did you hear that guy? Man, he really got creative there. Creativity becomes the 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 thing we're most interested in. Quite frankly, in Bible interpretation, created creativity is a very bad word. The last thing you want me to be is creative when I'm reading the scripture. You want me to be obedient, uncreative when you're re- when I'm reading scripture. Let it let it speak. And let me listen. So uh, that's the new hermeneutic. You can play in this. I give you some, um, you know, uh, I'm going to just zip right through this. Uh, I just ran out of time. But just to show you that it's there, and we'll pick back up on this uh, stuff later. Um, what I want to do, I think, next week, I'm going to talk and see if we can go ahead. I was going to do it later, but I think I'm going to try to switch some things around. We'll see, though. Is there's un- th- Those are sort of acids of modernity stuff that we've talked about very briefly. I can't believe how this time flies. Next time, what I want to talk about is in-house confusions. How there is uh, confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit and how that affects our Bible interpretation. How there's a confusion about the role of the church and how that creates confusion. And how there's a confusion about the role of what's called the priesthood of all believers. So I'm going to take these three theological concepts, and we're going to work through some of that to kind of debunk what we would call the the, the good and the bad, or the you know the, the right use of the Holy Spirit versus the wrong use of the Holy Spirit in terms of our understanding of interpretation. But if I can't, I can't. See, it's all glary. Do I have five more minutes? Oh, good. I have three. <laughs> Who said that? You know what? I'm just going to give you what you want. We're done. Uh, oh, I knew it. I got it. I was looking for that. All right. We're going to go back. I'm not going to try to start this right now. Um, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to try to start this right now. But let me just go down to the very end. And I have my two minutes. So I won't sound like I have bad, bad attitude or something like that. Hmm. I'm going here. Oh, man, let's see here. We're not going to cover all this. This is a lot of source material for you. The one thing I'd want you to do um, is is what we're going to end up is talking about the nature of the Bible itself. And so if you could, take a look at this and and go through this. But at the very end, let's, let's introduce you to how all of this plays out in terms of how what what is it we believe about the Bible. And the key thing here is this idea of God breathed. Or inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean to be for the Scripture? Does the Bible teach that Paul is inspired? I think a lot of people confuse that. No. Paul's not inspired. That's not what's inspired. It's the Scripture that's inspired. Does the Bible tell us that we're inspired? Or breathed out? No. Or breathed in? No. It's the Scripture. It's the words. And so this is going to get very, very important again when we start talking about the nature of scripture and and this and how that relates to this human de- 